Production of The Sound of Young America is underwritten in part by Ask Metafilter. Thousands of life's little questions answered online at ask.metafilter.com. I'm Jesse Thorne, live on tape from my house in Los Angeles. It's The Sound of Young America from MaximumFun.org and PRI, Public Radio International. Welcome to The Sound of Young America Holiday Special. I'm your host, Jesse Thorne. You know, I listen to public radio during the holidays, just like you're doing right now, and I feel like I've got a pretty good sense of the kind of stuff you're hearing. Uh, A lot of stories like folk tales uh, about various winter holidays, a lot of general festiveness and good cheer, Um, you know, your favorite NPR anchors reading Twas the Night Before Christmas and that sort of thing, And, and I'm all for all of that stuff. I love Christmas. I love the holidays uh, as much as anybody. But it just so happens that this year's Sound of Young America holiday special is a little bit darker. You know, the dead of winter is when we have the shortest days of the year. And when we have the shortest days of the year, we have the longest nights of the year. Which is why we've put together the Brutal Metal holiday special here on the Sound of Young America. In a little bit, we'll head to some places where there may not even be daylight in the dead of winter and talk about Norwegian black metal. It's a literally terrifying form of metal, not just aesthetically, but also physically terrifying, as in it has precipitated a number of crimes in Norway, uh, murders and arsons and such, but it's also kind of amazing. We'll talk with two documentary filmmakers who moved to Norway to make a film about this most brutal of music forms. But first, we'll have a little bit of the lighter, more fun side of the metal scene with a conversation with Judas Priest frontman Rob Halford. Anyway, that's all to come on The Sound of Young America's Brutal Metal Holiday Special. Here's some music that's not quite metal, but is a little bit down on Christmas. Well, here I am, down on Christmas, after being up all year. Broke my hip, cocked a grip, and my good wife disappeared. I hit the floor like an apple core when Doc took me off of the beer. It's hard to be down on Christmas after being up all year. After being up all year, I can't find any cheer. It's hard to be down on Christmas after being up all year. Yeah, here I am, down on Christmas, and I can't eat nothing fried. Had a slice of meat that was cut so thin, it only had one side. I feel a lot like a dirty sock that Santa Claus won't come near. It's hard to be down on Christmas after being up all year. After being up all year, I can't find any cheer. It's hard to be down on Christmas after being up all year. Here I am, down on Christmas, and to add to my concern, I got some coal in the kitchen stove, guaranteed not to burn. And I'd like to tell that guy with the bell he can go shove it into his ear. It's hard to be down on Christmas after being up all year. After being up all year, I can't find any cheer. It's hard to be down on Christmas after being up all year. Here I am, down on Christmas, and my credit's off at the store. A religious group sent a box of soup, but it came to the guy next door. I thumped the wall, but he never called, and I'd like to say right here, it's hard to be down on Christmas after being up all year. After being up all year, I can't find any cheer. 
It's hard to be down on Christmas after being up all year. It's hard to be down on Christmas after being up all year. Canadian country great Tom Collins with Down on Christmas. It's our brutal metal holiday special here on The Sound of Young America, and we have a true metal god. In fact, a man whose listed nickname on Wikipedia is Metal God, Rob Halford, the frontman of Judas Priest. Now, um, you wouldn't necessarily turn to the heavy metal community for your Christmas music, but Rob Halford has just recorded a brand new Christmas album called Halford 3, Winter Songs. Here's Rob Halford and his band's version of the classic Christmas song, We Three Kings. It's the Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest on the program, Rob Halford, has earned the title Metal God as uh, the frontman of the legendary metal band Judas Priest. And as a solo artist, um, he is one of the kings of the heavy metal genre. His newest solo album is actually a Christmas record, or at least a holiday record, called Winter Songs. Um, Rob, welcome to The Sound of Young America. It's great to have you on the show. Thank you, Jesse. Uh, feelings mutual. It's wonderful to be with you all today. That's what I like to hear. That's the kind of enthusiasm we're looking for, Rob. Good. Um, <laughs> so uh, you were born in 1951, which means that um, when you were finishing high school and, and you know you were in your late teens, it was just as uh, heavy rock music was emerging from uh, uh, early rock and psychedelic rock. Um, what was the music that you heard that made you think, I like rock and I want it to be loud and hard? Well, it, actually, Jesse, it was even before that because I can remember my, my Aunt Pat giving me an old record player that she wanted to get rid of, and, and it was still in pretty good working order so I think I was probably what 10 or 11 when she gave me this uh, record player and I lifted the lid and there was a bunch of 45s in the singles in the uh, in the deck and it was Little Richard, Bill Haley and the Comets and Elvis Presley and I played them all back to back and even at that age at that moment it was my god this is it this is it this is me this is electric this is contacting me in in such a such a strong personal way you know something's going on here why why is it making me feel this way i just felt alive and felt genuinely excited and 
And so even from that point before, as I grew, you know, slightly beyond my teenage years, um, it was already in my system. So, yeah, you know, obviously Hendrix, uh, the Yardbirds, uh, Cream, King Crimson, early Led Zeppelin, early Deep Purple, The Who, all of these people um, were the ones that I was listening to. The first couple of albums that uh, Judas Priest made um, it didn't have any huge hits on them, and um, it, it must have been a it must have been a bit of a struggle to continue uh, to be working as a musician. Um, did you feel confident that that this was going to become something? Yes, I think self belief is absolutely vital. Uh, no matter what you do in life, self-belief doesn't matter what you're going to do. You, you've got to have that. You've got to have that inner drive, you know. And particularly in the entertainment business, and I, and I say that rather than the heavy metal business or the rock and roll business, because it is that's what we do, you know. Um, there are so many pitfalls, and there are so many days where is it worth it? I'm going to give up. This is crazy. I'm not getting anywhere. That really puts you through, again, that kind of apprenticeship period of, look, if this means so much to you, you will do anything that you need to do. You will go through whatever you need to go through. And particularly in my role as Judas Priest, we did all of that. We did the sleeping in the back of the van. We did the barely having enough food for one meal a day type of deal. You know, KK scrubbing his teeth in the snow in Scandinavia is not a story made up. It's a real thing, you know. And um, and the first record that we made, Rock a Roller, it was called, our first label. We went to them and asked them for, I think it was like $20 a week each to survive because if we didn't have that, we'd have to have second, second uh, sources of income. And they turned us down flat, so... Right through the the early part of the band's career in Priest, especially, we were doing multiple multiple jobs, you know, to just to pay the bills and and put some food in your stomach. But the, most of it went into into equipment, obviously, new strings, new drum skins, uh, a new mic, whatever it was. Um, you have to you have to really figure that out. You really have to figure this out right at the early stage. The thing is, what happens there is. Your, your your early music is probably sometimes the, your best music because you've got nothing to lose. You've got nothing to lose. You're not famous. You know, you haven't got a gold record. You haven't got a platinum record. You, you're not playing in front of thousands of people. So your creativity is coming from a very pure source. So now, you know, in my 38th, 39th year of being a professional musician, I look back at those early days with a lot of fond uh, memories. You came out in the um, in the early '90s. When and, and to what extent were you out as uh, gay to your friends and in your family and the and the people that you were working with in Judas Priest? Well, it, with family, it was never discussed. It still isn't discussed now. <laughs> <laughs> and I've, I'm, me and my partner have been together for 15 years. Um, you know, it's like the elephant the elephant in the living room top of deal. I love my family dearly, and they respect me as much as I respect them. And that, at the end of the day, is the issue, isn't it? It's respect. Respect each other for who we are. We're all different. Different sexual orientation, different religion, different colours of the skin, different jobs, different social strata. It doesn't really matter. If the respect is there, you know, we can get through a lot of things in life. But with me, you know, being a metalhead, being in a, in a, in a, 
in an essentially, and to some extent still essentially homophobic realm in music, um, it was difficult. But again, you, you learn to deal with it. What, what I was doing for the longest time was putting a lot of things before myself. And when I went through my drug and rehab thing in 1986, I've been clean and sober since 1986, I was taught you've got to put your own house in order first. You've got to really, it's not being selfish, you've got to get yourself kind of figured out and then everything else will not necessarily fall into place around you, but at least you can take care of other things. But look after your own needs first. And, and I, I thought, that's, is that the right way to live? But it is. It's the only way you can remain sane and sensible and in, the, and in the end connect and be helpful and useful to other people as and when you need to. So I, I struggled with all that through, through many, many years until the moment came when very, um, you know, unpre-planned, uh, I mentioned that speaking as a gay man, yada, 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 I was on MTV. <laughs> And the you know the producer drops his clipboard and he's like, did he just say that? You know, and then it was like a firestorm around the world. What what we all found very very quickly was that in the metal community, it's it's nothing more than the greatest place to be in terms of respect and tolerance and compassion and understanding. And I'm probably it's probably easy for me to say that because I'd already reached a level of success. So. Um, I also found out that a lot of people were going, yeah, we need that anyway. <laughs> but I didn't know that. I mean, it's one of those, you know, you can't see the wood for the trees type of deal. You know, it, I, I was thinking as you were as you were saying that about, you know, the spirit of uh, so much of metal and especially so much of Judas Priest is about um, uh, is about this kind of outrageous eleven out of ten. Um, uh, self-expression and you know vanquishing foes and yes. freedom. Yes, um, it must have been very difficult to present yourself in that way. While while as as a god of that, mm. while you were struggling with those issues yourself, maybe that's where I put some of that. You know, this is like uh, Jesse Doctor Phil here because <laughs> maybe that's where it was. Because, you know, I'm, I'm the primary lyric writer for Priest, obviously, and in all my solo activities. All of my lyrics are full of optimism. All of my lyrics are full of that confrontational situation. I believe the good will always outwin, will always win over evil. I believe that. I think that's the way of the world. And um, I, I use that. I use a lot of, you know metaphors and, and kind of smoke screens and a little bit of ambiguity in my lyrics. But, um, you know, when I'm talking about the painkiller, you can, you can put that up against anything, dictatorship, um, you know, bigotry, war, you know, a- anything, anything where you, you can overcome um, difficulty. So maybe that's what I was doing in all those years. I mean, I kind of sidetracked in the turbo record, you know, and, and went a little bit more lightweight, so to speak. But I, I still think those messages are valuable in terms of fantasy and escapism and rock and roll. But the the, the bulk of my lyrics have always had kind of a, a, a serious uh, content to them. And fortunately, being in a metal band, I was able to to utilise those messages in the lyrics in uh, in the right way. It's the sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Rob Halford. 
He's probably best known as the frontman of the legendary metal group Judas Priest. Here's one of that band's signature hits, Hellbent for Leather. Starting in the late 70s with uh, one of your signature hit, hits, uh, Hellbent for Leather, you, you started in wearing it essentially... I don't I like basically something between biker clothes and S&M clothes mm. um, and doing things like, you know, riding in on a motorcycle and all these mm. all these crazy things. Mm. Um, when did you first start thinking like, you know, what would be great for this band? Like if we just went to the uh, bondage store and just <laughs> bought some crazy stuff. Well, that's the only way, in those days, that, that was the only way you could get that kind of gear. <laughs> Mr. S in London, I think he's still there, actually. Um, but if you look on the YouTube and and put in Judas Priest Japan 1970-something, you'll see a very different-looking band. Um, we didn't really establish the that particular, the correct look <laughs> uh, until uh, probably um, Sad Wings, no, Sin After Sin, Stein class. There's the, the, the song you mentioned, Jesse, Hellbent for Leather, which is a great song, and actually it was Glenn that wrote the lyrics to those, um, that particular tune. Um, a glint of steel and a flash of light, you know. Uh, again, it's a very assertive, macho type of song. And I remember us talking about, hey, wouldn't it be cool? This is a, a, a biker song. Wouldn't it be great if we could bring a bike on stage? And I remember whatever, wherever we were at, we asked someone, is there anybody here who rides a bike? And somebody did. And we said, hey, we'll give you five quid, you know, ten bucks, if we can, you know, use the bike on stage. And that's how it all started. And now, of course, that's become kind of part of tradition and the heritage of the band. And and so suddenly heavy metal music, the sound, the power, uh, the dynamic, the aggression, uh, all of the great um, aesthetics of, of metal had a look. So now when you see somebody walking down the street, they're not going to be decked out like we are on stage. But if you, you see somebody and you go, there's a metalhead, you know, the attributes with the studied belts and the chains or whatever, the, the wristbands, that's your, um, those are your colors, so to speak. Were you aware in the, in the early eighties of the kind of, uh, uh, the kind of odd irony of the fact that this was the <laughs> that this was the metal costume, yeah. but it was also a, a see, gay subculture yeah. costume. You see, that's just me. <laughs> I mean, I mean, again, I I, I kind of think that's cool. There's something about me. I don't know if it's the inner child or the inner stupidity, but you know, or the naivety. But that never even crossed my mind, and I was walking out on stage with this. Or, you know, village people type of vibe going. And I thought he was extremely funny. 
extremely funny. It's bittersweet when you think of the torment I was going through mentally. But um, yeah, uh, and, and I'm kind of I'm kind of glad, really. Uh, I mean, uh, in in essence, I mean, I'm I'm not a I'm not a I'm not into that kind of scene of, of of my particular world. Again, respect it just doesn't appeal to me. But but it is ironic that um, that, uh, that there's a correlation there, and people were going, "Come on, Rob, we knew all the time. You didn't have to tell us." <laughs> <laughs> you you were really hiding in plain sight. <laughs> yeah, hiding in plain sight, exactly. What was the um, looking back the most kind of r- ridiculous, amazing, delightful? Uh, you know, spinal tap moment uh, that you had in your presentation. Well, again, you know, again, it's 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 something that's kind of tinged with sadness because here's the deal: it's the ultimate spinal tap moment. We um, we were on the painkiller tour. We were coming to the end of the tour. Remember, this is 1991. We'd just come off the back of that very very difficult Reno trial. Prior to that, the band had been working pretty much nonstop for thirty years. I, I uh, should, without a break. I should interject here that you're you're referring to you. You had been uh, uh, sued in civil court um, yes. by uh, the parents of two children who had committed suicide, and um, yes. the suggestion was that it was your your subliminal messages in your music that had driven them to suicide. Exactly, and of course that was complete and utter rubbish, and it was an extremely difficult. Uh, time to go through. We were in a court in Reno for a month, and we faced these accusers uh, and um, basically told them that firstly you should take you should take responsibility for your kids, and I think that's what parents should do. And I mean, I know it's difficult, but you should still be take responsibility for your kids until they're old enough, and, you know, to leave the nest. Um, the kids were out of control, drugs and booze. The only thing that they loved was their metal. They loved Judas Priest. That's the irony of that, that particular situation. They were hardcore Priest fans, but they got messed up with um, with booze and drugs, you know. So you're coming off of this really difficult period. Coming off with that, you know, but um, we, we held back the release of Painkiller, but now it was time to release it. We released it. We had an incredibly successful tour all around the world, and I think the last show was at um, in Toronto. And we were playing in a... One of these baseball fields that you know doubles up as a as an outside venue. Loads of people, thirty thousand people, whatever. The stage was in the middle of the baseball field. The dressing rooms were obviously, you know, where the dugouts are, that type of deal. So we, to get from that location to the stage, we had to get on golf carts. The lights go down, the, the fans start going crazy, we jump on golf carts and we're all going off in different directions <laughs> for a start-off. They're spinal taps. Some, some of us are going north, some of us are going south. We eventually somehow get to the stage while the intro tape is running. I dash up, get onto my Harley-Davidson, which is under the drum riser, at a queue in the intro tape, these pneumatic steps come up underneath the drum riser and I'm able to roar out on the Harley. Everything was going to plan until suddenly somebody somebody yelled, we can't find KK, we can't find him, we've got to stop and start again. Well, that's what we were attempting to do, but nobody told me this. So I roared out on the bike. The guy that operates the stairs was bringing him back down, so I just belted into the bottom seat, uh, bottom set of stairs rather, at, I don't know how many miles an hour, knocked myself double back, you know, gymnastics, Beijing, <laughs> landed on my back underneath all this smoke and dry ice. The bikes fell, fell, fall into one side. 
almost on top of me. And I'm, I'm practically, I'm literally knocked out. Everything is a blur. Everything's got whoosh, zooming in and out for about a minute or so. Then I can feel Glenn kicking me, trying to find where Rob is. And that, that was and still will be the only time that Hellbent for Leather was an, was, was an instrumental because it had no vocals on. So there it is. That's that. I mean, how more spinal tap can you get than that? I sh- you know. We should say too that you were knocked unconscious, but you finished the show. Yeah, I, I did. I well, you know, the show must go on, <laughs> as Freddie Freddie Mercury used to say. We'll have more with Rob Halford of Judas Priest in just a minute. Plus, an exploration of the Norwegian black metal scene. It's a brutal metal Christmas on the Sound of Young America from MaximumFun.org and PRI Public Radio International. Mom and Dad said they could, so I did what I should. Hung my stocking on the wall, didn't get a thing at all. Don't believe in Christmas. Don't believe in Christmas. Don't believe in Christmas, cause I didn't get nothing last year. Well, stayed up late at night to see Santa Claus right sure up. Don't you know that boy did show? Don't believe in Christmas. Don't believe in Christmas. Don't believe in Christmas, cause I didn't get nothing last year. Well, tried to get a little kiss from a pretty little miss. She's slapping down, said the jerk, the missile cold doesn't work. It's the sound of young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Rob Halford. His new Christmas album is called Halford Three Winter Songs. It includes new takes on some Christmas classics as well as some original tunes. Here's one of those. It's called Get Into the Spirit. talked a lot about things that are uh, really super metal, like uh, riding motorcycles and wearing outrageous outfits and rocking out and stuff like that. <laughs> yes. Um, uh, on uh, Probably towards the bottom of that list is Christmas. Yes. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, actually, it's on the top of my list right now. <laughs> Thank you. 
<laughs> but uh, I, I think uh, the question needs to be asked. Um, what, what led you to think, I should make a metal Christmas album? Because I'm the metal god and I can do what I damn well want. <laughs> <laughs> I sometimes feel that way. You know, um, I was talking to Jason Bonham the other day. We did a charity show uh, in Los Angeles uh, for the, uh, the Midnight Mission, I think it's called. It was me, Jason, Slash, uh, Steve from Toto, Keith Emerson from Emerson Lake and Palmer, Tony White on bass, Ed Roth on drums, uh, on the keyboards. It was like a super group. And uh, Jason and I were talking afterwards, uh, and uh, we sounded like a bunch of grumpy old men, quite <laughs> frankly. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I, bought, I said, Jason, just listen to us talk, bro. You know, this is this is Jason Bonham, the son of the late great Bonzo Bonham, the drummer from Led Zeppelin, one of the greatest bands of all time. And um, so uh, we, we just got a little a little bit sidetracked, and then we said, you know, how cool it is that that we can do what we do, and that we we can really pick and choose where we want to go in our in our career. And so that's where I feel I have the great luxury these days to be able to do that. I'm, I'm able to look at where I've been and look at the opportunities that still have the sense of adventure attached to them. And so it, that's what it is with me right now with um, Halford 3, the first solo release from the Halford band in about seven years. It's a Christmas record, yeah. It's ten tracks, six of them um, are quite famous uh, traditional uh, holiday songs and four original uh, pieces of, of, of music. And um, I love the season. I love the holiday season. It's, it means a lot to me. Uh, I'll be there this Christmas time with my family uh, back in the UK, mum and dad and brother and sister and friends and relatives. It'll be great. There's something very charming about uh, the mix of uh, sort of older Christmas songs. I mean, not Let It Snow, but like, um, uh, you know, What Child Is This? Mm. Um, and the uh, sort of grand scale of your music mm-hmm. um, uh, was was that part of was that part of what drew you to this uh, to the material to the traditional songs that you chose particularly? Well, well, thank you for acknowledging that. And sometimes, again, wood for the trees. But yeah, I mean, there's a there's a vast there's a vast dynam- dynamic canyon between Oh Holy Night which is this gigantic opus with crushing guitars and keyboards and drums and big massive vocals to that really delicate uh, What Child Is This and um, it was like pick and choose. We were not going to do Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer or Foster the Snowman, <laughs> that would have been ridiculous. We wanted, to make a, we wanted to make a pretty serious record quite frankly. I mean I you know, I, I carry a lot of things with me. It's not baggage. It's who I am. It's what I do. It's what I represent. And I wasn't going to let the team down uh, by going, you know, completely off off the, off the planet, whatever. And so um, th- those particular ones that I covered, Oh, Holy Night, Come All You Faithful, We Three Kings, um, they're beautiful songs. They're great songs. A good song will always take interpretation and, and, and adaptation. So you're able to put your own kind of, impression and your own signature whatever you want to call it onto the piece and uh it was it took a took a bit of a time to figure out where we were where we were going to go in in covering those those beautiful um beautiful tracks and then the other the other tracks the originals were kind of spontaneous uh pieces that came together just because it was such an inspiring uh, recording session but 
this is me, you know, it's the metal god for the holiday season, and uh, there it is. Well, Rob, thank you so much for uh, taking the time to be on The Sounding Young America. It was really a blast to have you on the show. It's a pleasure, Jesse. I've had a lot of fun. I hope I didn't bore you with my <laughs> lifestyle stories and so forth, but it's all important, and I've really enjoyed myself, and I wish everybody the best for uh, a safe and peaceful holiday season and look forward to more heavy effing metal in 2010. Rob Halford is the legendary frontman of the band Judas Priest. His most recent album is Halford Three Winter Songs. It's a collection of both original and traditional holiday music done in his own distinctive and very heavy style. When the children sing and the snow starts falling We'll be back with more in just a minute. It's a brutal metal holiday on The Sound of Young America from MaximumFun.org and PRI, Public Radio International. I can't think of anything that's dumber To a grouch, Christmas is a bummer Beaming faces everywhere Happiness is in the air I'm telling you it isn't fair I hate Christmas People load it with goodwill Giving presents, what a thrill That slushy nonsense makes me ill I hate Christmas I'd rather have a holiday Like normal grouches do Instead of getting presents They take presents back from you <laughs> Here comes Santa, girls and boys So who needs that? Red noise. I'll tell him where to leave his toys. I hate Christmas. And if you want the truth, I ain't so crazy about Easter. And my- It's the sound of young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. 
I'm about to talk to the directors of Until the Light Takes Us, a documentary that follows two of the musicians who founded Norway's black metal genre in the 1980s and 1990s. The scene was aesthetically intense, lo-fi and fast and loud, but it was also intense in its ideologies. Out of it came several murders and a string of church burnings. One of the musicians interviewed in the film is Varg Vikernes, also known as Count Grishnach, who was interviewed from his prison cell in Norway. Here's a clip of him in the film talking about how he tried to make his early recordings sound as bad as possible. When I recorded my album, you know, I, I told the, the, the producer, you know, give me the worst microphone you have. We set up the drums, you know, we didn't do anything to make the sound uh, sound any particular special. You know, ten minutes, everything was ready, you know. And he was, you know, do you want to do anything? You know, you always have to, you know, adjust the sound of the drums and thing. No, because it was like a rebellion against this uh, good production. So, call it necro sound, you know, corpse sound, because it's supposed to sound the worst possible. So actually, I ended up with a headset <laughs> as a microphone. That was the worst we could find, <laughs> and use that as a microphone. So, uh, and uh, we, we used this tiny Marshall uh, amplifier. It was this big, because that was the worst amplifier we could find. It was terrible sound. It's the sound of young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guests on the program are filmmakers Aaron Aitz and Audrey Yule. Their new film, Until the Light Takes Us, is a documentary about one of the most brutal and intense music scenes in the history of uh, world popular music, Norwegian black metal. It, it focuses on two musicians, one called, and I'm going to mispronounce it, Fenris. Perfect. Okay, great. And uh, one called Count Grishnak, um, who are uh, stalwarts of the scene, uh, one of whom was uh, very recently released from a long prison bid uh, for stabbing a former bandmate in the head repeatedly with a pocket knife, um, and the other, who, the other of whom seems like a, a really sweet nerd. Um, <laughs> Guys, uh, welcome to The Sound of Young America. It's it's great to have you on the show. Thanks for having us. Thank you. So uh, this is such um, such an intense subject matter with uh, murders and arsons and um, ancient religious conflicts <laughs> and um, all this really uh, brutal, intense music. How, how did you guys become interested in it? You don't strike me as particularly brutal people. Um, well, we have our moments, but no. <laughs> um, well, we were living in San Francisco, and uh, a friend of ours named Andy Connors, who uh, owns Aquarius Records and actually used to be the drummer for my band, um, basically we were into like experimental and lo-fi music and... Uh, you know, he was constantly trying to get us to check it out, and we were like, no, no, we're not going to do that. But eventually um, we did, and we fell in love with it and sort of became kind of obsessed with with it. And uh, I don't know, about a year later, we were looking for a documentary to watch, and uh, there wasn't <coughs> one, so then we um, went over there to scout it out, decided to do it, 
lived there for two years shooting it. What, what was it that you fell in love with when you finally gave it the, the, the time of day? Well, there were lots of things, but I think chief amongst them is the fact that there's a, a very sort of cerebral constructed nature to the music i mean these aren't like sort of like bands that sort of come up from the streets like rocking out that happen to be from the same town like there's a set of sort of like rules and aesthetics that was sort of developed and then followed by the whole scene and and, and that aspect of it i i found to be really fascinating as, all- as well as the actual aesthetic um really striking black and white uh visuals and you know album artwork and uh just the really raw lo-fi quality of the music felt very honest at that time especially um indie rock was kind of you know going by the wayside at this point and and there wasn't a lot to be excited about at least for us in music so when we got into this and started to to look into it and see how much great music there was in the scene it was just one of those exciting moments of discovery and which you know music snobbery almost prevented us from like, experiencing it all. They, um, they created this scene out of uh, a set of ideas um, and uh, ideology that wasn't completely shared, um, but did have certain common aspects. What, what were those things that they wanted to be besides a general non-commercialism that could be, you know, you could find in punk rock or something like that? Um, well, I mean, you could find that in punk rock. It was a little bit different there because they were actually actively uh, sort of rebelling against the commercialization of death metal, which was happening in exactly the same time. And that was happening largely in Sweden. Um, And Fenris of Dark Throne was, Dark Throne was actually a popular death metal band at the beginning. And so he saw what was happening with death metal becoming as commercial as it was. And keep also in mind that commercial to I mean, Britney's a metal. Made a death metal yeah, album. exactly. <laughs> Once Avril. I mean, but the standards for, you know, for what's the commercial metal is it's a little different. So But I mean um, it filtered even beyond the music. I mean the lyrics were were generally the idea was to make something that was completely unpalatable, um, which is why some of them ended up being about Satanism, which later right i mean they were throwing out like everything that they could think of that would be like anti-societal i mean like, they were doing like pro-drugs yeah pro-drug statements to, to weed out the weaker members of society i mean you know <laughs> they themselves didn't do, do drugs. drugs there was no drugs right. really in the scene at all um i don't know they um they uh advocated a return to feudal lifestyles and um endorsed dictators um the yeah. covers art was Xerox quality and intentionally so. I mean, it was just the it was just a, a full-on oppositional movement that tried to oppose everything at once. And you know? it probably would have been successful if they hadn't started burning down churches and killing people. I mean, realistically, <laughs> they were on the right path to anonymity. You know, <laughs> one mistake and they're they're done. <laughs> It's the sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guests are Aaron Aitz and Audrey Yule, the directors of Until the Light Takes Us, a documentary about the Norwegian black metal scene. Here's a clip from the film with Gleev Nagel, or Fenris, who's a member of the band Dark Throne. I refuse to <clears throat> stand court-martialed for making this whole underground movement into a trend thing. If it's <laughs> anyone, it's, it's not us. But I guess most people would say that. 
That's what people usually ask, you know. The mission statement was not escaping the death metal trend, but definitely we were thinking of not stepping in the garish footsteps of what became commercial death metal. Well, what do you know? What are we looking at here? That was Fenris of the band Dark Throne, one of the two main subjects of the documentary Until the Light Takes Us. The film's other subject, Varg Vikerns or Count Grishnok, was recently released from prison in Norway, where he was convicted of murder and arson. My guests are the directors of the film, Aaron Aitz and Audrey Yule. Why did you decide to make this movie about these two men and not about uh, the you know aesthetic qualities of the music, which which is usually the subject of uh, you know most. Uh, music stuff. I mean, you, there's, bar- there's barely any, any black metal music in the film and barely and almost no performance. Maybe some, there's some, uh, you know, old rehearsal footage. Well, having, having licensed the soundtrack myself, I can tell you that there's over 20 black metal songs in the film. <laughs> but no, there's no live footage. And it's not really a rockumentary. It's more of um, a portrait of uh, these two. I mean, there would be four people who basically started the movement that ideally you would want to to interview about it, but these are the two that are left alive, so we chose them. And we, um, I mean, we didn't, we didn't want to do like a survey of black metal. We don't, we weren't interested in making the filming the film version of an encyclopedia entry on black metal. That's not interesting. I mean, that's a kind of documentary, and you know, but we'll leave that to you know the History Channel if they want to tackle that. But I mean, as far as documentaries go, we don't tend to like very straightforward ones. Just personally, you know. Um, we we like, don't come from a documentary background at yeah. all. Let's talk a little bit about, about these two friends that are the uh, primary subjects of the film. Um, one of them is this guy who, who you who we've already talked about briefly, Fenris. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, tell me a little bit about him and, and how you found him when, when you first met him. Well, when we first met him, uh, it was to ask him to be in the film and... Uh, we got along with him really well. He's, I mean, he's a musical encyclopedia, not just metal. I mean, he's. You have a scene in the film of him, him talking about. Uh, I, I'm trying to remember, maybe trance. Was he's it techno and house and trance? Yeah, he's into all that. He used to be a DJ of uh, house music as well. Um, he told us that uh, he's n- n- not under any circumstances will he ever watch the movie, so not to be shy about filming whatever we need to film and putting whatever we need to put on the screen to tell the story. What was the appeal of uh, black metal for him as it, when it first began to emerge? Well, he, I mean, he was one of the ones who, who created it. Um, it's for him. It's the, I mean, he's a huge metal fan and that's, that's sort of his world. I mean, that's, that's how he creates. That's what he creates. That's, that's what he's moved to make, I guess. And so for him, it's entirely natural. He's a um, uh, uh, he he comes off. I think I said in the introduction as kind of a, a sweet nerd, like uh, the kind of guy that was you know like a bright metal guy at your high school. Um, Count Grishnach, who's the other um, uh, subject of your film, also has that quality, but in a very in a very different way. Uh, tell, tell me a little bit about uh, he must have been in, in jail by when you got there. Um, mm-hmm. What did you expect him to be like, knowing that he had been um, convicted of murder and, and church burning um, before you got there? Well, had we already spoken with Faust at that point? I, th- I think Varg was actually not the first 
murderer church burner that we encountered. Um, I think, hadn't we already interviewed yeah, Faust? Yeah, we'd, we'd already then? interviewed Faust. Um, but with Varg, I mean, I, I, I sort of knew um, what he was going to be like because we had we researched for a lot, quite a bit. I mean, and I we compiled every print interview that any of these people had ever done into these giant yellow pages-sized compendiums. So there was, I was pretty much knew what he was going to be like. I mean, I the things that I wondered were like, what kinds of like, does he play video games? <laughs> things like that, which he does. Um, uh, actually, he plays World of Warcraft. So, <laughs> um, so you may have played against yeah. him. Um, it took us eight months to uh, get him to agree to meet. Um, and we were over there filming at the time and knowing full well that we were just going to pack it up and go home if we didn't get him because you can't really do a worthwhile movie about this without having both Varg and, and Fenris in the movie. So it took eight months and it was very tense. Uh, we would constantly get these letters that said things like, even if you make exactly the movie that I myself would make, I still won't be in your movie. Um, but then he would end every letter with a question so that the correspondence would continue. And eventually um, he agreed to meet. And so I flew up to Trondheim and went into prison and, no. I think I think the main thing is that, you know, once he'd agreed to actually do it, he was actually much like Fenris, you know, very yeah. forthcoming and you know, very what you see on screen is is very much who he who he is and who he presented himself as. Um there are certain things he couldn't discuss for legal reasons, but you know, pretty forthcoming. I can I can hardly imagine what those things were because <laughs> he, he describes in detail his version of the murder than he perpetrated right yeah right. well some of the you let's know, just say there are a few unsolved alleged church burning instances. it's the sound of young america i'm jesse thorne my guests are aaron Aitz and audrey yule the directors of until the light takes us a documentary about norwegian black metal here's a clip of musician count grishnok speaking from his prison cell which looks a little more like a dorm room there's a computer bookshelves even kind of nice furniture well, kind of like a, you know, uh, what's it called, ambivalent. I have a uh, ambivalent uh, feeling in this context because, in one sense, of course, it's uh, hard to have to be without freedom to to move wherever I want to and stuff like that. But in the other, in another sense, it's kind of positive because I have the opportunity <laughs> to like read books and. Uh, focus on more important things. It's like a... I consider it like a, a stay in a monastery. Um, one of the boldest choices I, I thought you made in the film was not to, as, as we did in this interview, um, open with the fact that this guy murdered somebody. Right. Um, why did you choose to construct the film that way? Um... There, there were actually a few reasons. The biggest, though, was that had we shown up front that this was a person who uh, would be perceived as a um, a villain, essentially, or a bad person, um, that instantly would have changed the the audience's perception of everything that he said. It, uh, you know, instantly then you're hearing from a, a murderer, and you know, generally speaking, people aren't going to take. 
um, a very open mind with, you know, when, when the, a murderer is talking on screen. And um, we didn't want to completely invalidate everything that he had to say right off the bat. We were interested in having um, this, this person who's essentially a very charming and charismatic character. And we wanted the audience to, um, to, to sort of go through the process of getting to know this character, perhaps being charmed by him, uh, certainly probably relating to him a little bit, and then to reveal these darker aspects of his character. Um, I think it has a lot more impact when you're able to reveal bits and, and, and a progression about a character. I so think it would have been... It's more powerful to, for an audience member to say, like, I was identifying with this guy who ended up being a murderer rather than to say, like, oh, that murderer had some interesting things to say. Yeah, I mean, just from an emotional perspective and building a character and an arc... I mean, we come from a narrative background, and I think that's really basically what it is. We construct it in a narrative style with a climax, and, you know... It's, just... very, it's very scary to watch someone who, you know, it, from my, my personal experience watching the film was... Um, you, you, you're, it's not even apparent that he's in prison. And um, uh, he, he's talking about things, and you have this feeling like this guy is an extremist, but... In the way that I don't know, like uh, Leonard Peltier or something like that, is an extremist, like a member of the American Indian movement. Like he's talking about his, you know, um, uh, ancient Nordic religion and that kind of thing. And you're like, well, you know, this guy's into some weird stuff, but more power to him. <laughs> and then, and then he just talks just as plain as day about murdering someone, and it's horrifying. Yeah. yeah. Well, there's not too many. Rock scenes that can boast those interband murders. <laughs> um, I, I, th- I think the main thing is just it allowed us to present someone who actually is a very complex person as a complex character and to let the audience sort of go through a progression of dealing with who he is on many different levels. Um, very important to us because it would have been really easy to vilify him. And we could have gone much further in vilifying it. Yeah, I mean, it could have been a completely different movie. I mean, but we was... He does seem like, and correct me if I'm wrong, kind of a villain. I'm just saying, overall, in real life, as a racist murderer... Church burner. Church burner, etc. Yeah. Um, it's true. So it would it's, be within your rights to vilify him yes, as documentary. I mean, but at the same time, I mean, you're able to say that seeing what you did. And, and as, as documentarians who are dealing with real living people, I think it's important not to, you know, make things quite so simplistic. And, but, you but, know. but we do get criticized sometimes for, for not for vilifying, not vilifying him. him. But I mean, I don't really know what to do. How much do I mean, what do I stop the movie yeah. and be like, murder is bad. Don't commit murders. Well, I'll, 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 give you, I'll, I'll give you an example. Something that I didn't know about as much from the film as I did from reading, uh, 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 reading about him elsewhere was his uh, race-related views. There's, a, yeah. there's some sort of there's, – there's certainly he says, talks, says a lot of anti-Christian stuff in the film in the context of his – um, you know, uh, neo-pagan religion. Mm-hmm. Um, but he doesn't say the kinds of things that, you know, he's apparently, from what I understand, no longer describes himself as a Nazi because he doesn't want the baggage, which well, I can understand. Well, I think few, it had more to do with being in prison. Yeah, I mean, essentially, <laughs> that's not uncommon is what he's for... Said. Yeah, I mean, what, what he's actually said is that a lot of that came out of being in prison and needing to identify 
um, with a group um, just for his own It doesn't excuse and, anything. It doesn't excuse, but, you know, certainly. But at the same time, we also didn't want to peg him as a neo-Nazi because that is inaccurate. Um, and it's certainly inaccurate for the rest of them. It's very inaccurate for the rest of the scene. And that was a huge concern for us is that we knew that Varg, of course, had gone through the sort of neo-Nazi phase. He'd also gone through other phases. Um, uh, with with different belief systems, but we simply knew that to tag him as a neo Nazi was going to paint the whole scene in that light, and I think that would have been a grosser injustice. Um, so I'm, we're happy with the portrayals of everybody as being accurate and just. What did you learn about how these guys and the other people who were involved in this scene? Um, maintained themselves or or understood themselves uh both for someone like Count Krishnach who who as you said continued down this path of politicization and uh becoming more and more entrenched in, in ideology and and Fenris who essentially says maybe a third of the way through the film you know 15 years ago I just withdrew from all of that completely um I think with the exception of Varg who takes a pretty cavalier approach to everything um <laughs> There's definitely been some some you know introspection and some thought and I think I think everybody actually deals with it in a pretty serious and you know kind of heavy way and you know nobody else is really laughing about it the way Varg does. I mean for for Fenris in particular this was a time in his life where I mean sort of everything that he was establishing was was taken from him um by all the violent actions that being perpetrated by his friends and and you know colleagues and so for him it's it's something that he looks back on and you know it's it's difficult for him it's emotional and it's painful and you know that was something when when we were filming with him it was often um very charged when we were discussing these things and and, you know we felt like we didn't want to push him because it was obvious that he was having you know difficult emotions and having to deal with this stuff and but at the same time, you know, just sort of wanting to to show that complexity and and the the depth of emotion that he had as as someone who had created this this kind of music in the scene and then had it turn into something else. Um, thank you guys for taking all this time uh, taking all this time to be on the Sound of Young America. It was it was so great to have you. Well, thanks for, thanks having, for having us. us. Aaron Ates and Audrey Ewell are the uh, directors of the new film Until the Light Takes Us, an engrossing picture of um, a strange and uh, a little bit terrifying world, uh, Norwegian black metal. Until the Light Takes Us is in a staged release. You can find more information at blackmetalmovie.com. That's our time for another Sound of Young America program. I've been your host, Jesse Thorne, America's radio sweetheart, the show produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our editor, Nick White, in Chicago, intern Mariel Reyes right here in Los Angeles. You can find us online at MaximumFun.org. And if you have thoughts about the show, you can email me at jesse, J-E-S-S-E, at MaximumFun.org. This week on the show, you heard music from Stompin' Tom Connors, The Sonics, and Oscar the Grouch. We'll see you next time right here on The Sound of Young America. Production of The Sound of Young America is underwritten in part by Ask Metafilter. Thousands of life's little questions answered. Online at ask.metafilter.com. Support for this program comes from this station and public radio international stations nationwide and is made possible in part by the PRI Program Fund, whose contributors include the Ford Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. PRI Public Radio International.